Welcome everyone to this yet another exploration into samsara. Don't just get stuck there, but think of nirvana, because we have Buddha nature. That's such a lineup, such an uplifting lineup, yet at the same time rooted in reality. So, so. Welcome, and uh, Venerable has safely arrived here, and she may be resting. She's well. Asked me to take this one more session. We'll see what becomes of the next session. <laughs> but this one for sure, I'm doing it, and I see it to be maybe for the time being the last one. Anyway, I very much enjoyed it. And uh, before we go into the discussion, we'll take a few minutes in silence, calming our mind and body, particularly our mind. Let it slow down. Maybe keep pace with the natural rhythm of breathing. And let it just focus on the sensations associated with breathing in real time. By letting breathing happen on its own, without trying to regulate it, control it, or wish it to be otherwise. Just merely take it for what it is and stay with it. And staying with it, try to do so alertly, attentively, delightfully, all combined together. Maybe we will start by reflecting on the last stanza of this homage to Shakyamuni Buddha, where he says, A star, a mirage, a flame, of a lamp, an illusion, a drop, drop of dew, a bubble, a dream, a flash of lightning, a cloud. See, conditioned things as such. By the way, this is from Vajrachebika Dojicheba, Diamond Diamond Cutter Sutra. So, in whatever way you relate with this stanza while you say this, I try to bring them all up here in the course of this reflection and also wonder what new insights they might be pointing to regarding our life, not just our life, it says, see all conditioned things as such. I think here, conditioned things is used in a 
more liberal sense as against conditioned only confined to so-called compounded phenomena, or rather all phenomena are conditioned in a, in, in a liberal sense, conditioned in the being, in being dependent, without able to stand by itself. So, bring this stanza to your mind, go through them one by one. Those you have already memorized this would be able to do so. Let me help those who are seeing this for the first time. The first is a star, a mirage, a flame of a lamp, an illusion, a drop of dew, a bubble, maybe a water bubble, a dream, a flash of lightning, a cloud, listing nine metaphors here. And we are advised to see all conditioned things, all phenomena. In these ways, not different from these. Of course, a few of these metaphors stand for impermanence, so its subject matter would be confined to the compounded phenomena alone, but most of them, most of them, almost eight of them, or at least seven of them, they apply to all phenomena in regards to their being. Completely, thoroughly dependent on others. And the way they are dependent, thus lacking any self-power of their own, is reflected these metaphors by bringing up different aspects of them, different facets of each of the phenomena in being dependent, in being illusion-like, in being mirage-like. Particularly the reference to the drop of a dew, 
ease to impermanence. Oh, drop it you. No matter how sturdy, formed, shaped, particular it may look, all it takes is just a little warmth, you'll be gone. So it's our life. Just for everything that we do is fleeting like that. But more important to us, because of our attachment to our life, life's condition of being, a fleeting moment. In the words of Lama not that I've met him, but I've heard about his teachings through Venerable. Our life too is come, come, go, go. And who knows when it will go? The very next moment after this session, a little more. And the water bubble has a particular significance in that when it forms on the surface of water, it looks like it has a distinct characteristics of its own, and that it's different from its base water, but the moment it pops, it falls down into the water, it becomes one, inseparable. So are many of our so-called pleasures, and I think just a mistaken appearance, temporary enticing appearance of pleasure, whereas in the very, very moment itself, it has undeniable element of dukkha, and then later on it shows its gross dukkhaness, very apparent. It just sinks down into the source of dukkha, which it has just arisen fleetingly. So irrespective of whether we believe in the life after life or not, we have to we have so much to learn from these metaphors and get a lesson in life so that our life will be lived meaningfully. particularly for those of us who believe in karma. Going beyond this very life, this single lifetime, who believe in life after and life before, and who believe in the possibility of improving our condition, almost in a very radical way, completely turning it around into something very different, very positive, very beneficial, one and others. And the means of doing that is by embodying the practice, embodying the teachings, 
and towards that end, one has to first understand an overview of the spiritual journey, very important, so that one has an idea of where to head, where to face, where to move on, so that each step will not be wasted, will bring us closer and closer to the destination, yet at the same time, be very realistic in what one is, what moment, what condition one is in, and thus maneuver one's movements, one's journey accordingly. This we will do, this we do through, through the three trainings, which are sometimes called Tagum Chusum, to view meditation and conduct. View is like a long-term overview of what is involved, what comes after that, where is it heading, what does the end look like. With that sense of confidence, we press on with our moment-to-moment real-time practice. And in doing so, and that we do through meditation, in doing so, we would face with so many unexpected challenges. And we have to steer through them, overcome them, get the better of them through our practice of shila, japa, the behavior. But for all of this, first and foremost, we have to learn, we have to understand, and that we do by hearing, listening, sharing, discussing. So dedicate all the merits this session of hearing, listening, discussing, to the end of being successful in laying out, laying down those groundworks, and also be successful in actually walking the path for the sake of all sentient beings. Okay, so today we better move on. <laughs> okay, so last time, uh, for those online, we are still on page 279. <laughs> A week passed, but not our page just moved. <laughs> anyway, we are on page 279, and we just finished the reflection there. And I guess this is more like a review of the chapter. 
and it is called is liberation possible? Now here we are calling, talking of liberation from samsara, and nirvana is another name for liberation. So it could be expressed as is nirvana possible? Is nirvana possible? Is nirvana feasible? Is nirvana, is attaining nirvana tenable? So that's what the question is about. So nirvana here we are speaking of a state of being, not going into extinction, but keep staying with the quality change in our being, in our capacity, in our abilities, in our awareness, in our reach, all of those. And then if we are talking of liberation, if we up it a bit, then be up to liberation, we can attain full awakening. Just as the term itself suggests, we have a lot to be awake from. We are in a deep slumber. in the thick forest, not doing any plumbing work, paper just getting lost. <laughs> okay. Although it may not look like look like that. Right? That was very apparent, clearly clearly reflected in the case of someone who went for hiking and completely trusted the GPS. All of a sudden, they were in the middle of very thick, thick forest, and there was no signal. They couldn't find their way up. They moved in their car, went round and round and round and round, which is itself very reflective of samsara, orva, cyclic, sickening, cyclic existence. <laughs> That's actually sickening, but it's only when we think about it. And if, particularly when we have to repeat it again and again and again, again, like the water wheel or a bucket. <laughs> like the water wheel of buckets. <laughs> or the water bucket. Anyway, so not getting anywhere, right? Yeah. Even with, I mean, from that perspective, just mere doing is not enough. But doing with a purpose, with a clarity, is all that matters. Otherwise, we have been doing something all these many lifetimes. Or at the very least, since our birth in this lifetime, we have been doing, doing, doing. But where have we, where have got, where have we gotten to? in terms of real meaning and achievement, and just be, just be so confident in facing our death with a sense of celebration. We're so far, at least I'm speaking for myself, very far from that. Anyway, to review, so, so yeah, liberation here is nirvana, and it means freedom from the bondage to uncontrolled birth and death, 
driven by the force of afflictions and the karmas induced by them entailing all of these sufferings in one form or the other without any end. So end, end to that bondage is liberation, is nirvana. Nirvana itself is, a, from a philosophical point of view, itself is a non-affirmative negation. I may say so, like in the case of emptiness. So it suggests elimination or eradication of something that leads to problems, unceasing problems. And here, that root of problem is recognized, identified in the in the grasping and inherent existence of things. Self-grasping is little problematic for those who have, who have not heard it. It's like, oh, oh, grasping at yourself. That's not the case, but here it is. Grasping at whatever it may be, at their inherent existence. And here also, nothing wrong with the word inherent existence, because there could be inherently existing things in a conventional sense. But here we are using it specifically in the ultimate sense. It has a special notion of kind of a perceived existence, which in reality is not there. But that perceived, wrong perceived notion of how things exist kind of gets us into problem. It's so ironic. Something non-existent that we have just latched onto is, is, is leading to all these problems. I mean, it's very ironic. And as strong as we may consider ourselves to be, we are subject to such a uh, illusion, such an illusion, such a uh, mistaken view. So sometimes we call liberation from the aggregates. There's another way of calling it, but it's saying the same thing, because the way to get freed from being born again and again into this kind of aggregates of which the cause is the afflictions and the karma combined together. It's the same thing. The way to get rid of that is by uprooting its causes in the form of afflictions. And that, in turn, is dependent on uprooting the ignorance And which, in the Prasangika, Madhamika perspective, takes this, this ignorance, takes different forms, but the main ultimate form is that of mistakenly grasping at, mistakenly apprehending and buying into this, this illusion of things having inherent existence. So it's so crucial to understand what we really mean by inherent existence. Why things? I remember very clearly in my Madhyamika class, which spanned for me four years, 
most of them, most of the students spent two, three years. I ended up spending, of course, good for me, four years, two years at the directory school, and two years in the in the uh, monastery in South. So that means repeating the second year course twice. <laughs> So at that time, I very clearly remember wondering in the class, what is Gela talking about? What is not there? What is not there? And everything there is not being denied, and he's saying, pointing to something that I just, just don't get, that he is so insistently saying it doesn't exist this way and this way. It will, if it were to exist this way, it would happen this way, it would happen. All this, what do you call uh, absurdities, consequential absurdities are being thrown onto something that I didn't get it that was there and let, and more particularly, not, not just get here, but I don't even see him in mind, in my mind, in terms of what is wrong with how I see things. Things are solid, see here. So if it does not existing, substantially solidly than what it is. So, yeah, and it, it can be so very much mistaken for, mistaken for a lesser one, a different one, a totally overboard one, a totally underestimated one, totally overestimated one. Even in the scriptures also it suggests of, being very careful in what you negate. The object of negation should be nailed down squarely, but even leave a piece of it. Even if you leave a piece out of it, that's a problem. The problem still lies. You have to be kind of, your understanding of emptiness should match squarely on the, on the object of negation so much so that uh, when it attacks, it doesn't leave anything, anything of its part un, unpinched. <laughs> unaddressed. Yet at the same time, it should be not damaging to the conventional truth. So be able to situate this so-called, this radical idea of no eyes, no nose, in the face of eyes and nose. It perfectly makes sense. Yes, no eye, but eye, no eye, but eye. Yeah, you should be able to really say that. And, and 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 it really means this, this form is empty. Emptiness is form, right? In regard to the form itself, it's emptiness. It's all what what makes form possible. If it weren't for its emptiness, the form would not be possible. Thanks, thanks for being empty. Thanks for the form being empty. Now it has home form. <laughs> So, in, in His Holiness's term, His Holiness parlance is another way of saying it. Tenjung, dependent origination on the one hand and emptiness on the other hand, should be able to be, if, if, if one were thinking of a container, two containers, right? Equally sized. Whatever is there, you put in there, it will fit in there. Whatever is there, you put in there, it will fit in there. Nothing will spill out, right? 
to that extent, it should kind of uh, square out. And of course, uh, this this dependent origination is not just of not just causal independence, nor even the biological dependence dependence on parts and particles, nor even the dependence on uh, dependence where we see the interdependence so clearly between between cause and effect, whole and part, base and the base basis and the based. That's another category, and in my awareness, it is a it is a new shift. Now, instead of saying there are three dependent, dependent, dependent originations, as the causal dependency or dependent causation, dependent parts, I would rather lump the two together and call in Tibetan is called tene tene kepa, dependent production. Then a tupa, dependent constitution, maybe, and then then a takpa, dependent designation. So we are speaking in terms of the dependent designation part of it. But the tricky part of it is dependent designation. It cannot be understood before understanding emptiness. <laughs> so the tools you get to use of dependent origination in in unlocking. Emptiness is only those which do not completely match with it, yet, yet barely holds on to a, a, a notion or a, a facet, an aspect of dependent origination. So you either use the causal dependent as reasoning, or you use Meriological dependence, dependence between parts and wholes, or you use the dependence between the things which are interdependent. And then through that, through using these as keys, you unlock emptiness. And then to see whether you have gotten it perfectly right is when you come out, you, you, you should be able to greet all the diversity after having been so immersed in nothingness, almost nothingness, if you will, <laughs> then coming into things, and without the slightest unease, be able to welcome them and kind of say, of course, of course, because you are empty, and thus you are, you are incapable of what you are. So, and then the, the tricky part, I will touch on this a little bit and then move on, okay? And then the tricky part about this is, yes, just as we say, a person does something. A person does something, a person thinks. When the person thinks, he thinks through his mind. Mind is the one who does the thinking, and the person gets the credit. <laughs> That's unfair. And poor person cannot do anything without, cannot think at all without the mind think, thinking, mind thinking. That's all it, it does. And when you say, I mean, one point I was eating, I said, I'm eating. All the eating does is either the hand is moving the food into the food, then it's scooping up, and then the mouth gets it. Where's the eye that's doing the eating? Then when I 
eating it, I get fed. Now I can move, I have energy and do it. Yes, definitely I got fed, but where the food went was in the stomach, not into specific me. And the eating was done by hands and spoons and all of this. And that's all what it is there for viably calling that I ate. And then if we break it down, it comes down to the same thing with everything. The hand is not no different. The hand doing this time something. Now it's part of his fingers just doing, but part of it is not even moving, but the hand gets the credit of doing something. So likewise, if we break it down, then it comes down to everything. Same, same way. No difference. So then when we say we control the mind, mind controls the mind. Except the difference here is when we are in control of the mind, then do you say we are on, on top of it? <laughs> then we are in charge. We get to decide. When the mind is in control of us, we just sheepishly, sheepishly follow it. And mostly the mind doesn't take you to any good place because it itself is following the direction of mistaken views, anger, jealousy, greed, all this misfed, all this misinformation that we have fed it. That's what the mind follows. And then we may or may not see something follow, going above the, before the mind, but we are just seriously following the mind. That's when the mind is controlling us. When we take charge, by making the mind take charge, <laughs> yet at the same time have the say in our hand, then we are controlling the mind. But in both of them, the controlling is done by the mind. So they are different, but not world apart. They're not one thing, but at the same time. But at the same time, the whole convention around it becomes feasible, becomes sensible when we think of think, think in those terms of, of making of, of making sense of the subtle nuances, subtle changes, subtle shifts. Such differences. Okay, so uh, that's it. So that's the opening. <laughs> and you are free to lash them onto any part of this session, this this, this uh, portion that we will cover tonight, okay? <laughs> to review, disturbing emotions and wrong views are called afflictions because when they arise in the mind, they afflict us and deserve our mental peace. Now, some are quite obvious, some are not that obvious, some are so creepy, creepy, creepy. We don't have, we don't have noticed after it has done the damage. What? When did you even come? You have already gone, gone past and left all this garbage here.
I didn't even notice. Some will be very gross. You'll be suffering, you'll be calling for help, right? Nonetheless, they all have the same function of disturbing our mental peace, stirring it up. And most importantly, they leave us at their mercy and unpredictable in what we will fall into. Emotions, particularly the afflicted emotions, are so short-sighted, so short-sighted and so uh, so much into getting things fixed here and now, and so stubborn also, and also so constraining, and above all, presenting us with a totally, I say totally, 100% wrong perspective. Some neuroscientist, his holiness very often brings up his or her name, Aaron, I don't know, Aaron Beck, who through their uh, experiments affirmed that yes, when somebody is very angry, 95% is mistaken. But from a Buddhist perspective, no, 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 100%. <laughs> because every perspective, every view, every view, every perspective, every every view or every uh, yeah, every outlook, every view is unsparingly pervaded by this strong notion of inherent existence. So nothing, be it in way of appearing it and in, in way of grasping it. So that's why 100%. So, so, yeah, they may differ in terms of how subtle they disturb, yet at the same time they do disturb. They leave behind destruction and then go. It's like, but we cherish them. We gave them the most best room in our heart. <laughs> and we have been doing that for so long, so long. Now they feel that that's their home. They go there and stay there. They build the stronghold in their heart, in our heart. <laughs> Sometimes we even use, from a Buddhist perspective, from a Buddhist perspective, some may, some others may have their own way of uh, verification. But from a Buddhist perspective, uh, some may even take resort to wrong philosophy, wrong view, wrong whatever, and then defend them, provide them protection, <laughs> even more protection. <laughs> so. Yeah, we have to take them out from our heart and let that space be cleared for some some other guests to go and build the grounding there, namely the wisdom of understanding emptiness, compassion, tolerance, kindness. They need to be enshrined there. They need to be welcomed there and made, made to stay there instead. But our self-grasping attitude may be laughing at us. Oh, you, be, you speak big words. 
and you have been saying all these things, but so far I have not budged even a single inch. Nothing of a threat have I ever sensed, <laughs> let alone being touched. So do whatever do, say whatever you say. <laughs> nothing is going to, nothing is going to touch me. It has not touched me for all these times. And then even if there were some glimpses of wisdom coming in, oh, he would, the self-grasping would rise up and say, Who are you to come here? This is my place. I've been here for lifetimes. Who are you daring to show up here without my permission? Go. Go. It would have gone because the wisdom is so weak. Run back. But we are not supposed to give up. We have to keep on keeping on. Yes. <laughs> keep on trudging. Okay. Yeah. That's the that's the reason why we have this mantra. Although to get to the first gate, first gate itself is quite difficult. We have to push on. And unless and until we reach the third gate, there's still no complete confidence, complete assurance. Even in terms of having faith in the triple gem, heartfelt, deep-seated, really moving, almost to the point of giving rise to a pain in the, in the butt. When you keep, when you take refuge, to when you take refuge, yeah, yeah, in, in the gut, in the gut. I said in the gut. Sorry. <laughs> I see. First, first I didn't even catch, and then I saw someone doing like this. Okay, what did I say? Ah, uh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Heartfelt. Heartfelt, we say heartfelt here, but some uh, some kind of experience in the gut, almost like a pain in the gut, a kind of a flashing pain in the gut. Unless and until we have that kind of a refuge. <laughs> Let's break here. <laughs> okay, anyway. And uh, yeah, that, uh, until then, until then, even. The Mara of the Deva Mara can reach us. We are still within his reach, his or her reach. Oh no, his, his, only his reach. Yeah, there is no her Devaputra. <laughs> there is no her Devaputra, right? Devaputra is son. So, whoever, I mean, we may rotate in, 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 in taking turn in becoming, <laughs> but it's always a Putra, not Putri. <laughs> So, yeah, until then, until then, even the Devaputra uh, can reach us. We still fall within this. So, in the scriptures, it says the path of seeing. In the case of the Bodhisattvas, when, in the case of the Bodhisattvas, when they become incontrovertible Bodhisattva, I said incontrovertible, okay? I didn't say in control. <laughs> yeah, in controversial bodhisattva. Since 
from that point onward, then they are out of the reach. So yeah, we have long way to go, but still there's no other option but to really push on, otherwise we will keep on circling around like we have done for the past. For the, for the, what do you call? For the, the time coming before is forward, right? And the time, time that you left in back is, what, what do you call it? Pardon? I mean, we are in between two eternities, right? I'm talking of the, the gone eternity. <laughs> eternity in the sense that when we go back in time, there's no, no beginning, right? So that's itself an eternity. And there's another eternity there in front of us. We are caught in it. So we have been going, doing for all this time, but nothing of any significance. Change, shift has happened. So anyway, in addition, they motivate us to do actions that disturb and afflict the peace of others. Fortunately, these afflictions can be removed, enabling us to attain liberation, a true state of peace. A true state of peace in the sense that such a peace is not lost anymore. Right? And that's why it's called a true state of peace or true cessation. So, whatever has been seized through, through these means would remain seized, never return back. And that's possible because the afflictions are grounded, rooted in a misconception. But but this part about the afflictions being rooted in the mis misconception in the form of grasping the inherent existence, existence has to be worked out by oneself. Mere statement in the scriptures, no matter how much it is repeated, how many times it has repeated, is not going to help, not going to make difference. So in a way, we are yeah expanding on the metaphor I, analogy that I used one, one time ago about the scientists, in what ways we are different, in what ways we are similar. We have similar, one thing similar, or maybe among others, one particular similar thing is we also have to do our lab work in our laboratories. Yeah, they do their lab work and come up with their research. We should do our lab work. Our labs, don't worry, we are very well furnished. Eh? Each one has a very well furnished lab. And that lab has all those elements that you need to work on and figure out the truth of these. And this lab is so strange. Unlike, unlike the scientist's science, scientist lab, where others can come and join and help. This lab, only one can come. Others may come, but once they step on the door, they become invisible, unreachable. So one should have done one's best in really, really making the theory understood, so that one could then apply it there correctly. Okay? So in that regard, we are very similar to the scientists. 
that's how I used to uh, speak to this, the monks also when I was in, engaged in the EDSI. Uh, some would ask, uh, what's the need of learning science? Everything is taught by Buddha. Everything is taught by Buddha. Nothing is left out. But mere having taught is not enough. You have to do experiment. So do learn how how to do experiment from the scientists. Apply it to your inner laboratory, <laughs> and then find out the truth of the theories, the Buddha's teachings. However much, however much you rely on your behavior, at best they are theories from a scientific point of view. Not even laws. They become laws when you establish them. <laughs> as, that, as the truth by working in your lab. So, so this part about, fortunately, these afflictions can be removed. How? Why? And that part is very important to be understood, understood well, uh, so that it could be then further tested in its experience. A true state of peace that does not fluctuate according to external circumstances. Several factors make liberation possible. The basic or true nature of the mind is pure. The basic nature of the mind is, is clear like water. Dirt in a glass of water isn't the nature of the water and can be removed, no matter how murky the water may be. Its essential quality of clarity is never lost. This basic conventional nature, Swabhava, of the mind is clear and cognizant. It is the basis upon which awakening can be attained. And as such, it is the ultimate source of our confidence that awakening is possible. So here, obviously at this level, we are speaking of the, the clarity or the knowing nature of mind in its conventional sense, in that it has, by its very nature, uh, this aspect of being cognizant, of being aware, almost in the form of reflecting something to it, whatever appears to it, whatever comes in front of it or brought to it, yet at the same time with a certain subjective touch, not like that of a reflection in the mirror. So awareness of the object and its very nature is clarity or clear, as if in, in the form of a water or in the form of a clean glass or mirror that are capable of reflecting things. And Additionally, with that subjective quality of awareness or kind of a uh, kind of a cognizing it, and that is something shared by even the afflictions, even the mental afflictions. Even can you believe? <laughs> so, when we say 
afflictions, anger, jealousy, greed, they are themselves uh, the stuff of the mind. So they all share in this basic nature of purity, basic nature of clear and luminosity. So that's the reason why when in the scriptures they make this distinction between how the transformation is described. In the case of transformation of the anger into something else, it is called nejur. Nejur means status change. Yeah. Yeah. So it's 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 interesting. I just I just thought about it. It's, it means status change. Its status has to be changed. In the case of this settlers clear that mind, its status doesn't need to be changed. So it, it makes this distinction of how its improvement doesn't mean changing its status at all. It just keeps its status and adding on more qualities to it, but not changing it. Whereas in the case of anger and others, it's way of addressing or transformation is by changing its status, almost like replacing it with something else while maintaining that same base of clarity. Yeah. So, so I wonder if even in science also there is something, even on material things, something that has that that always has to exist, that that, that always has to be there. Is is there from a scientific point of view? What what, what do you think of the subtlest particles? I'm asking anyone, yeah, satellite particles. I I think all of the particles, and, and I'll take a, a, a fact check on this, I think all of the particles that we know about that are exper you know, experimentally understood um, can in in different ways can transform into another particle based on a certain type of interaction or like an electron can annihilate with a positron and create photons other particles can decay kind of um and turn into other particles so we never see something kind of vanish into absolute nothing yes but there's not one thing that can't ever transform into something else you know through through the causes and conditions what about electric charges? Um, you can have an electron, which is negatively charged, mm -hmm. and a positron, which is um, antimatter, pair to that, which is positively charged, uh, come together and create photons. And so in that case, the energy has transformed into um, photons or electromagnetic energy. So your net charge you started as zero because you're at a positive and negative, so you end up with zero net charge in the end, too. But in terms of the charges themselves, they do, do, do they change? Um, yeah, you've, I mean, we would... Does we, a positive charge change into a negative charge? I'm not speaking to, of the thing, thing mm. but the charge itself, if it is a separate phenomenon or not. I don't think I understand the question. I'm sorry, Gashida. Yeah, I've seen uh, this expression that electric charge or this charges, mm. whether it's electric charge or charges are never created anew, nor are they destroyed. Mm -hmm. So what does that mean? 
they only are transferred. Mm-hmm. They only are transferred. They are never created anew, nor are they destroyed. So if if we have two electrons and we don't let them interact with anything else, then you would just continue to have kind of two negative charges total. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you start with like a positive charge, say in a bag and a negative charge in a bag, well, your total charge is zero. And so that's where they actually can um, interact and, and kind of have no charge in the end. Yes. So, but that will not involve, that will not uh, suggest that any charge has been destroyed. We wouldn't, because the total charge has stayed the same. That's, that's the key. Okay, so, yeah, it's interesting when I came across this statement in the course of my task, I said, what? Even science says this? By the way, in a way, uh, it has always been saying the same thing about energy, right? It's constant, it's never, it's never created a new noise, it's never lost. It, it may be shrunk, it may be enlarged or whatnot, but net amount is always the same. So anyway, uh, I was just uh, trying to draw some some comparison between this 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 nature of mind. Anyway, from a Buddhist perspective, mind uh, is a separate entity. Uh, not that it is not dependent, particularly on the grosser levels, but it is a separate entity of its own, and not just as a property of a of brain or of a physical thing, but rather an, an entity of its own. Yet at the same time, uh, from its Highest yoga from our yeah, highest yoga tantra standpoint, which is considered to be the ultimate standpoint of the Buddha mind in whatever form, gross or subtle, has always has to have an an energy uh, kind of uh, prana energy accompanying it. So, depending on how across the mind is there would be more possibility, more probability and possibility of, of interacting with physical things. So in that way we understand how how it could be seen that yes, meddling with the brain uh, parts can seem like meddling with the mind itself. Whereas in actuality it is getting getting affected indirectly through its mound, through its accompanying energy, which is which has a physicality. So anyway, so on that basis we speak of how the mind's very very basic nature is pure. Pure in the sense that that no dirts can make into its very core fabric and become part of it in such a way that when the dirt is taken out or destroyed or cleared, the mind also gets destroyed. Not not that kind. So that kind can never happen. So even when we speak of uh, anger being eliminated and whatnot, uh, that doesn't mean, yeah, at this level, that, that, that doesn't mean that the the, the clear and knowing part of anger is also severed. Rather, it 
it takes another form. It is employed by another another uh, mental uh, mental state, but it's it's very mental fabric, if you will, is not lost, and it gets carried on. But from the highest Yukatantra point of view, all the rest of the mental events, mental states, are very adventitious and gross compared to compared to that, and thus. Its continuity will have will happen only on the level of this subtlest cleaner, not on its uh, gross level. All those gross levels of minds are adventitious, even including the very, even including the very subtlest, the three very subtlest among the four very subtlest, of which the fourth one is the subtlest of the subtlest, right? Anyway, inanimate objects, it is uh, inanimate objects such as stones, trees cannot attain awakening because they lack the qualities of clarity and cognizance that only a mind possesses. The afflictions are adventitious, they are not part of the nature of the mind. So one has to understand this. Uh, in the sense of not something that has necessarily to be there for the mind to be there. It is uh, it is a coloration, coloration that part of his mind, part of the mind has taken on, which can be removed without having to remove the mind itself. So that's what it meant by adventitious. Sometimes people say. Temporary, but temporary not in the sense that they will just come and go on their own. Uh, rather, they assert their they assert their residence within us uh, by reason of having been here for all these times. Unquestioned, <laughs> unquestioned. Okay, so they are not part of the nature of the mind. Dharmakirti says. The nature of the mind is clearly light, defilements are adventitious. Afflictions have not penetrated into the basic nature of the mind. The fact that the afflictions are not always present in the mind indicates that every instance of the mind's clarity and cognizance is not associated with afflictions. Yeah, that definitely shows that afflictions are not all there is, definitely, and that mind can have some other spaces, some other spaces other than being preoccupied by afflictions. Uh, but at the same time, the question arises, what does that clarity, the clear, luminous nature of mind look like? By its by its very nature, it doesn't have any of the qualities, either positive or negative ones, into it. So it it could be considered neutral, or you could say unoccupied, un unowned, <laughs> yet unoccupied. But unlike afflictions, in the case of the positive qualities. They do not necessarily have to rely 
on mistaken conceptions as their basis. Although they do, at our level of ordinariness, even the positive qualities we generate, they are mixed with uh, perception of permanence, perception of inherent existence and whatnot, but they do not have to. They do not have to depend on those as their lifeline, including compassion, all of those. They can be refined. So that's why the understanding of emptiness is considered as a refiner or refinery for all the positive qualities to go through and get refined of the and sh- and shake off the the the, the grasping uh, grasping at an this part of it. So it's, there's there's so much work, uh, even for say one particular quality as compassion to go through in refining it. Right. First, it may be just barely compassionate, but with all of those masses built into it, and it needs to shed them without losing its 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 compassionate nature, which it doesn't need to. Rather, compassion, and likewise with understanding of emptiness, permanence, they are rooted in reality, and because of that, they have an extra strength to support of the truth. Because of that, when they are when they are made part of the mind, it sticks. It sticks and it could be, it could be, what do you call, mm, learned in such a way that it would eventually become natural, uh, natural, almost like a natural part of the mind itself. So that's the reason why the, despite neither afflictions nor positive qualities, being not part of the mind or not core basic nature of the mind to begin with, yet there is the feasibility of the positive qualities to be not only brought in into the mind mental realm, but even made an almost a natural expression of it uh, by reason of its being backed by reality and thus not having to face any kind of opposition to it that is uh, strong enough to base it. Whereas in the case of afflictions, that's not the case. No matter how strong it is, it has always the threat of being being deported (laughs) because of not having a valid visa. Because it was a fake visa out of which it has come. <laughs> and we have been fooled all this time. But look very carefully, it has a fake visa. The stamp will look very funny. <laughs> so that's why it can be driven out. And the reason for that, and maybe uh, you remember from Shishetakala's teaching of the Brahmana Vartika, right? Where it makes two main points for compassion, qualities like compassion, the wisdom to to grow infinitely. One is they have a very, very stable base in the, it has a very stable base in the, in its luminous and aware nature, which is never, ever, going to be severed 
So the, what, the reason why I was asking was, is there something that you can say from a scientific point of view that not there's, there's something, one thing that can never be severed, that can never be stopped. And I'm thinking of, for the sake of coming up with some example, I'm thinking of energy. But at the same time, I was thinking in terms of the electric charges also. If they are not created anew, they should be. And they are never destroyed, but only transferred from here and there, transformed. Then there's also yeah, some kind of a similar thing in the physical world even. Oh yes, regarding exploring into the luminous, clear nature, knowing nature of mind, I shared His Holiness's suggestion of a meditation. I just conveyed, I remember that I conveyed only halfway through it, not the full story. So His Holiness was suggesting one that in the first the first thing in the morning when you are half awake, half still dozing, kind uh, of yet you are standing up, you look at your mind, which hopefully is not cluttered by any of the afflictions, any of the big concerns, then you will be able to see the mere, the mere, if you will, the mere mind, the mere clear, unadulterated, knowing, luminous nature of mind, mere clear mind, mere clear subjective agent there, which is the quality of being aware. The other one was looking at a statue with your eyes intentionally looking at it clearly, and then eventually kind of completely neglect that and look at the perception and, and maintain the perception of it at the mental level. And then eventually, even, yeah, and so first you are looking with your sense consciousness, then you get a good picture of it and then catch it in your mind and have that mind be retained for a while. And then eventually, so that that mind is looking at the picture, through the mental picture. And then eventually you flip, you flip it in such a way that the mind on which the picture is being reflected is the subject, is the object to look at. So we were suggesting that that way some sense of some sense of a clearer appreciation of this nature of mind uh, might dawn. And that may, that may speak more about the relation between mind and other things, including brain. So the Afflictions may arise and after a while pass away. But unless we do make efforts, they are only faking going away, but they are not gone anywhere. They're coming back, they're going to come back. They are not there. They have not come to pass. They, they exist, but they exist in such a way that we cannot say it of them that they come to pass. <laughs> they come to stay unless we make efforts. 
the, by the way, this expression is quite intriguing. It, it comes to pass, which means it, it happens, it exists, right? But that's quite telling of how, what the reality is about everything. Come to pass. Come just only to pay, to go, right? But that's not what the mind, the afflictions are doing. They may, they may show like they are going, but they will not pass. They will only yeah, appear again if we do not dig deep into them. Mm. If they were inherently, afflictions may arise in, after a while pass away, if they were inherently part of the na true nature of the mind, they would always be present and would be impossible to eliminate them. Or else, if they eliminated, the mind would also be eliminated. Yeah. But this is not the case. Which is not the case. Yes. And because of that, it's possible for them to be eliminated, yet retain the mind. The purest form of mind is the fundamental inner, innate clear light mind, obviously venerable is referring to the subtlest clear mind. In ordinary beings, this subtle clear light mind is neutral. It has never been and can never become non-virtuous. This is quite interesting. And by the way, the mind is so interesting. Mind is the object to be cleared. Mind has to do the clearing. And mind gets the benefit of being cleared. Right? The, the purification takes place in the realm of the mind, and the result of it in the form of the cessation of attainment, realization, also happens in the mind. It's, it's where all of this happens. So the purest, purest form of mind yeah, I heard His Holiness also speak of this. Even at the, at the time of, at the, at the actual point of death, when no other mental states except for the subtlest one is manifest, because it has no choice but to, all others have subsided, right? So only that arises. At that time, there's not supposed to be any afflictions. Now, when I say that, there will be many questions. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm speaking of the highest yoga tantra. If you're bringing ideas from Vaibhashika, Sotantra, then it's different. <laughs> you cannot say, Buddha, Buddhism says that because it says there, that's different. <laughs> By the still, still, when you say, then what about the karma next? Should always be ideal. Either, either good or neutral, but not bad. No, the sowing of the seed or the ripening of the seed has already gone past. Because that happens in the, in the, in the context of the dwellings during the Kebaseba Kubalimba at eighth and the ninth. Right? And then it's followed by uh, 10th, the activated karma. And then, although we say aging and death, uh, aging or, or dying, 
Yeah, that itself is a process. So it takes a while for the natural mind of clarity by natural occurrence in that death uh, to manifest after after the decision has already been made. <laughs> after, after the destination is already stamped. You're going there, not there. <laughs> so we have to make, make sure to prepare before that and not wait and hope for that thing. Yeah, but at the same time, it can be made virtuous because virtuous, virtuous, positive qualities may look like depending on or on the afflictions and mistaken perceptions like the afflictions at our ordinary stage, but they do not have to. Even the, actually their their vibrance, see, their uh, vitality, their strength even grows more if they are the more they are purified of those inroads uh, by the mistaken perceptions. So and and then they are rooted in 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 reality in fact, and thus they have that added strength of truth, added strength of uh, strength of being able to withstand uh, any challenges, and thus uh, there's this possibility of building those qualities along, uh, even on that very subtle, clear mind. But then, at that time, all the qualities would also be in that nature, not gross. It's, it's, it's not like a, a, a butter sculpture, where you then study some ornaments on it. Right? <laughs> the ornaments, every, every formation would have to come from itself. Okay. I thought of pushing through all of this. By the way, there is, there is there is a quotation here at the end of the chapter, which is not rendered in verses, but in prose form. But actually, this uh, Dharmakirti's work, chapter chapter one, uh, that's quite hard understand. All flows being susceptible to the... By the way, now, now I'm reading the very, uh, not the last, but the second last, the, the, the quotation from Dharmakirti. All flows being susceptible to decrease and increase have counterforces, hence due to having inculcated the sun Counterforces to habituating oneself to them. At some point, the pollutants should be eliminated. Here is particularly speaking of how there is this shift, how there is this at least uh, correlation. What do you call the? Do you call that inverse correlation? Right. If something goes up, something goes down. There is an inverse correlation between, say. 
anger and and compassion a grasping at or even all of the afflictions and the understanding of emptiness when that is built the force of the afflictions go down when the afflictions uh, become stronger uh, the force of the, the positive qualities is less right so you see this correlation and if you look very carefully you will see how that is not just a mere correlation there is an actual actual kind of link between the two relation between the two uh, in being the opposing and the opposed in tibetan we call it nege 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 the harming the harmer and the harmed uh, what would be a better better word of this relationship counterforce counterforce and force and counterforce <laughs> i don't know anyway they have they enjoy this quality this relationship of being opponent of being opposing forces and and from that uh, we can see how yes the afflictions can be decreased because they we see their flux going up and down when we see when we bring in uh, these uh, counterforces within us and these counterforces being rooted in reality and thus have a more chance of getting the upper hand getting the best of the afflictions so that's why we have the reason to inculcate the counterforces because the counterforces have been seen to have this potential of combating them and rerooted as it is in reality and thus it built on can grow into such a strength of being unchallengeable by the afflictions and uh, then there is the possibility of uh, eliminating them and then about the mind as you remember the the two main qualities is it has a it has a very stable base uninterrupted unceasing stable base of mere clarity uh line mere clarity line and then it has this quality of when pers- persisted in the practice the the prior practice say love and compassion uh the prior practice of love and compassion I, you can pick up from there although what others have done you cannot pick up from them right <laughs> not like scientists but here one thing similar is if you have developed love and compassion the next time the love and compassion will be more easy to come up because of because of a very very special link uh, between them in in what we call ringda which is the ringda there is an aspect of similitude similitude in them not every causal relationship would have that kind of a aspect but in the case of the mind be that afflictions or non afflictions they all have this quality and because of that the, the previous one can can keep energy 
to the next one. But in terms of really being able to benefit from that, in that term, in, in that respect, one has to be regular, practicing it regularly, consistently, and then when practicing it, practicing it seriously, attentively. So those two things. Tsongkhapa, almost at every stage in Lamrim, whenever it comes to cultivating something, 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 he always adds it with with intense aspiration, with some intensity. Even when we are praying, kind of to, at, at least at that time, at that point, we kind of pray from the heart, right? So we can make this distinction. When we are really heartfelt, uh, or we are not, Heartfelt, not in the sense of this heart to achieve kind of a realization and true experience, lasting experience, but kind of really uh, doing one's own energy into it in, 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 doing, in doing that. So we call that two aspects of, two aspects of joyous effort. One is persistence. Resistance or consistency. The other one is, uh, the other one is being into it. And the other one is, uh, kind of, what do you call it? Yeah, in, intensity. Intensity and, 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 intensity and, and regularity. Consistency. The two, that would that would mean every time it is intense, though not rigid, but intense. And then when carried on, it can uh, make a difference. So that's uh, that's what's being talked about here. Yes. So those are these special qualities. And in that respect, even the afflictions share in those same qualities of having a stable base. Yet, in terms of the in terms of being part of the mind, by the same time, it's very nature, it's it's its own individual, unique uh aspect is is grounded on a fake, a mistaken conception. That's the reason why it is irremovable. Otherwise, and thus it is not backed by truth, and thus it is removable. It doesn't have that base. So that's the difference. On that basis, we speak of how compassion can be generated infinitely. And as well as anger and jealousy can also grow infinite, in, in, infinitely. Except the differences, when they are addressed, they can be, they, they can be affected. Otherwise, if we indulge in it, it can also grow infinitely because it shares the same two qualities of having a of having a stable base and also having this quality of of what you call feeding into itself. The previous previous indulgence feeding into the next one, the next one. If we keep on doing it, it can grow almost without any bounds. Okay, and but the same case is. Is the, with compassion, and additionally, compassion has the strength of being rooted in truth, and thus having the ability of really sticking to the mind to such a point that eventually it becomes its natural 
almost like having entered into its fabric, uh, although we cannot quite say that, but would have been so uh, habituated that it would be a natural part of it. So with that note, let's stop here.